0: Let's take the fight to the indies with Independence War, this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity, or do you die here?
1: Join. Die. Join.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode twenty of the Upper Memory Block podcast. As usual, I am your host Joe, and we are back once again to talk about a great game from the DOS and pre Windows XP gaming era. Well, since I haven't spoken to you guys since before uh, before the holidays, I hope everyone had a very merry Christmas and that everyone had a real fun New Year's Eve last night. It's currently January 1st, 2013, so this is your first podcast of the year of 2013. I hope it's going to be a good one. Uh, My Christmas was very enjoyable. I know I mentioned last time around I went on a little trip, so my wife and I went down to Mexico. We had a great time. We sat on the beach. We drank some drinks. We ate some food. We went went swimming in a cenote, which is an underground uh, cave filled with water, so that was really cool. It was filled with catfish and Creepy cave stuff, and we went snorkeling in there, and the water was nice and cold. Uh, yeah, so that was <laughs> that was a ton of fun. We since came back, had Christmas with uh, Fran's family, my family, fun holidays. I went skiing one day, and you know, overall, it's been uh, it's been a good holiday. And now I am here to talk about a cool, cool game. So not much in the news uh, this week. There may very well have been, but things are usually slow during the holidays. And uh, I've been a little bit out of the loop, being that I was away and celebrating and all that stuff. So the only thing I really have to report on is um, that both Steam and GOG had kind of their big holiday sales. There have been tons of games on sale. I'm not sure if that's still going on or if it's over now that uh, now that it's New Year's. I imagine some of them may, uh, may go through for a few more days, but um, I know both... Sites had some really great stuff on sale for for good prices. I picked up a couple of games on GOG, including the one I'm going to talk about today. It may still be on sale for today, so you may want to go check that out. But definitely go take a look at both uh, store.steampower.com and GOG.com to see if you want to save some money, maybe use some of that uh, money you may receive for Christmas on some great, great games. So, two emails this time around. The first from our good friend Andreas. He writes, Great show as usual. I don't really have anything to add, and I haven't played next week's game, so how about I ask you a question that's been on my mind instead? You often play the join die clip from Fallout during the bumpers. At the end, you always cut it off at the join. Is that because it was your choice at the end of the original Fallout? Uh, tongue out, smiley face. At the end of that well Andreas, uh, there's there's a bit of a story behind the uh, the theme song. As I mentioned kind of at the end of, of every show, the theme song was created by, uh, by my good friend Rick Moyer at Moyermultimedia.com. And and um, so the story behind the theme song is basically when I was coming up with the idea for the show, um, I kind of went over to Rick and you know I, I, I messaged him I believe and I went, hey Rick, you know I, I had a, a dumb idea and uh, I think I'm gonna start a podcast and I think it's going to be about old video games. And blah, blah, blah. So, you know, he came back and he's like, because he's a very, very supportive friend of mine and all that. He came back saying, that's an incredible idea. It's amazing. Do you mind if I make a theme song for you? Because this is what he does. He's a professional musician and he does things like bumpers and voiceovers and all that great stuff. So I said, yeah, sure. Why not? You know, if you have nothing better to do. And about an hour later, he came back with the theme song. That was, you know, no revisions. Boom. The theme song that, you know, actually, no, sorry. He came back and he asked me, you know, can you tell me a few games that you're going to cover on the show so i can pull clips from them so i think i said you know command and conquer and fallout and space quest and a couple of others that you know if you play the full uh if i play the full minute and a half of the intro you, you kind of get clips from all those games in there and so honestly it wasn't even me that put the join die at the end of there it was it was rick and honestly i don't even frankly remember what i chose at the end of fallout or even if i finished the first fallout i know about you know the unity and joining or dying basically and all of that but i don't think i even really got around to the point of actually making that decision but uh you know rick i'll put it out to you if you want to uh, drop me an email or you want to drop me an audio comment to talk about maybe why you put that at the end i like to think it's because we want you to join the podcast and not to die because i don't like killing people but anyways rick yeah let me know uh why you put that there and uh I really like it. I think, it's, I, I think it's great. I think it works really well. And, uh, you know, thanks for that question. That's, that's, that's really cool. It's not something that, that I personally thought about. So um, we shall see. So secondly, we have Martin, who is calling me out. So Martin writes, Hey Joe, Martin here again. I tried to do a few voicemails, but they always sounded a bit too sharp-tongued for me, which would be unlike me. So I figured I would write an email to you to address a recent friendly transgression. In one of your episodes, you stated that you once rented Wing Commander for the SNES and found it just terrible. Your words carry weight on your listeners, Joe. To passively condemn a game is uh, based off a rental? How absurd. I understand everyone is entitled to their opinion, good sir, but allow me to make the case for SNES Wing Commander. Let's say for a moment that you have never played Wing Commander in your life, and suddenly someone drops off all the floppy disks on your doorstep and enough of the manual to get past the copy protection. Would you be able to properly play the game without looking up any of the controls? Of course not. Now, I'm making assumptions here, but it would seem to me that when you rented Wing Commander for the SNES, you might have not had the SNES manual handy. This is unfortunate, because the SNES has just about the same complexity of controls than the PC version. Every command the PC can do, the SNES could do as well, with the exception of changing your uh, looking position, and surprisingly, the controls weren't all that bad either. Of course, there were many other differences in the game, with the most prominent being the following. Inability to spin, as in do a barrel roll. Minimal damage representation inside and outside. Removal of space debris from explosions. No built-in saves. A password feature was used to keep track of mission score and teammate data. Due to a limitation of the ROM space, the Jouthi was replaced by a color-swapped Southy green. Uh, Slightly easier to navigate asteroid fields and minefields. I grew up on the SNES version of Wing Commander, as I didn't have a computer that could run it. When GOG finally released the, the Wing Commander series, I was ecstatic to finally try them out in their native environment of the PC. Needless to say, the PC version of Wing Commander is of course superior, but because I had so much trouble adjusting to a two-button joystick scheme, I used a program called Xpatter to map keyboard controls to my wired Xbox 360 controller and mimicked, as best I could, the SNES controls. My piloting skills drastically improved, I beat the game with the best ending, 110 plus kills, and all wingmen remaining. I implore you to reconsider your judgment of the game. Plus, sound quality wasn't so bad, too. PS, fun fact, Wing Commander 2 was developed and finished for the SNES as well. I hear it went so far as being ready for production, but never saw the light of day. People still seek out the ROM for that game to this day. Here is more information on the subject, and he provides a link. Well, Martin, you know, maybe I spoke a little bit too, uh, too harshly about it but you know i guess like you whereas the first time you experienced wing commander was on the snes and that's the way that you were able to play the game even after you played the uh played it on the pc version you kind of made it that same experience my original experience was on the pc and you know as you said there is a lot more stuff on the pc and you know i'm fine maybe it wasn't horrible and maybe i didn't really give it a chance i mean i only had two days of a rental to uh to play it, and I was just kind of like... I, I remember the reason I rented it was because I said, oh, I love Wing Commander, and uh, I, I didn't have it installed on the computer. And I said, you know what, I'll give it a try. I can play it on my TV and see what it's like, and it's amazing. And, you know, I probably did read through the manual, but I don't think I, I gave it a good enough chance. Now, if I went back to play it now, I probably still wouldn't like it. But, uh, you know, that's just my opinion, and, you know, if you guys want to do... play console ports of PC games, I know some of them are better than others. And uh, to me, Wing Commander... You know, it was probably probably a a decent one, but for me, the control scheme, you know, I was used to playing with my Gravis Advanced joystick and all that, so um, so yeah, for me, it wasn't the best thing in the world, but you know, as I always say when when I give my verdict on every game we talk about, at the end of the day, it's up to you. You know, I can tell you what I think, but it's up to you to go and and try it out for yourself because, you know, not everyone has the same likes and dislikes as me, so as usual, up to you. And uh, very cool. I didn't realize that Wing Commander 2 was actually developed for the SNES. Wing Commander 2 is probably my favorite Wing Commander game because that's where they really... Wing Commander 1 was, you know, they had the whole branching mission arcs and the great graphics and all that. But Wing Commander 2 is really where they really got into the the narrative where, you know, between each mission there was a cutscene and even in missions there were cutscenes and things like that. And, you know, the story was really engaging in addition to the really fun gameplay so that that's really cool and uh you know i'll put uh, there's a wc news link that uh, that he uh that martin put in here so i'll put that in the show notes if you guys want to go check that out thanks again martin you're listening to the upper memory block podcast time for Overview. So, on to our main topic, a game series that I've been wanting to cover on the show for quite a long time. In fact, this was almost episode two of the podcast, but I decided to put it off a while since I know this isn't a series that was as well known as some of the others that I covered in those early shows. So, this week, we are going to talk about the Independence War series developed by Particle Systems and published by Infograms. The first game, called Independence War was released in Europe in 1997 and in the US in 1998. So this is the first time I'm really taking my tagline, DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming, to heart. I'm pretty sure this is the first game I'm talking about that doesn't run under DOS, but was a Windows 95 or 98 exclusive title. So time for the genre. Independence War is a space combat simulator. We haven't really covered a pure space combat simulator since way back in Episode 2 when I covered Wing Commander. So to remind ourselves, a space combat simulator features what we suspect would be a somewhat realistic representation of what futuristic space combat would be like. Uh, The vast majority of space combat sims place the player in control of a small single man starfighter or small starship, some others, including Independence War. Place you in command of a larger capital-class ship with multiple crew and more complex controls. Uh, regardless of the type of ship you are in command of, space combat sims tend to be mission-based. You're generally part of some military organization and receive briefings from your commanders. Uh, upon completion of your current mission, you are usually then returned to a between-mission interface where you can perform housekeeping tasks like saving your game or selecting your next mission and the story can be linear or branching depending on your performance in missions and can be told via in-mission events or by between-mission cutscenes. So with all that in mind, let's get on to the story. Independence War contains a very interesting and engaging story which is introduced in a 14-minute pre-rendered intro movie. Before we get to that, though... The game manual provides some great background on the universe, which fleshes things out even more than the intro does. The Independence War universe began as many other sci-fi universes did. Man's expansion into space and colonization of other worlds began a new wave of colonialism, fights over resources and land, and battles over sovereignty. Uh, In the current time, the interests of Earth and its colonies uh, have, have conflicted these conflicts have resulted in an ongoing guerrilla war in space between two major factions. The legitimate government of Earth and the colonies are known as the Commonwealth. This is the side you are a member of. The Commonwealth maintains a large space navy to ensure safety on the space lanes and sovereignty of Earth and other Commonwealth worlds. On the other side of this conflict, we have the Independence or Indies. This movement was started by the colonies' need for self-determination. The Indies are made up of a motley collection of pirates, terrorists, and colonists who strongly believe in independence for their homeworlds. This hodgepodge of membership has created a very interesting political culture of defiance of authority within the ranks of the Indies. Now, This wouldn't be an issue, except that they have also built up a fairly sizable fleet of ships. Indie ships range from modified commercial and utility vessels all the way up to captured frontline alliance naval vessels, a typical encounter is illustrated in the first few minutes of the game's intro movie.
2: Computer, take a memo to Admiral Henson, Navy Headquarters, for FTL transmission. Bam, this is Clay on the Dreadnought. We have spent the last week on patrol in this cluster, and up to this point we have seen no evidence of the unidentified shipping you described in your report.
1: Furthermore, I must
2: register hey, sir, my- Sir, we're getting a coded transmission on a secure channel. It's the Harvard. She's under attack. Looks like she's encountered a small indie fleet. Signal the Harvard. We're on our way.
3: Damn.
1: Attention, enemy
3: shipping. This is Captain Mishima of the Commonwealth vessel Harvard. This is your final warning.
2: power coming on stream now, sir. Good. Status? Sir, this is engineering team 2. The main is down. We have lost all primary power, sir. This ship is not going anywhere.
3: Message coming in, sir.
2: This is Quartermaster Macduff McDuff of the independent vessel Indecent Proposal. You will surrender your vessel to us. Your ship has been commandeered by the independent navy. Offer no resistance, and no one will be harmed.
1: Go to hell.
2: All hands, now
3: hear this. To prevent this ship falling to the enemy, we are scuttling her. Prepare for emergency evacuation. All hands, e station. That would be a
2: very dangerous move, Captain Michelin.
1: Are you absolutely sure you
3: wouldn't like to reconsider? What's their position? Ten million kilometers in closing. they are right by the Lagrange Point. Two ships moving in to intercept us.
2: Okay, gunner, missile slow-mo, target on bogey A, launch on my mark. Mark. Helm, ready with
3: 180 pitch. Now! Fire! Second Indy coming about.
2: Now! Status on the Harvard?
3: The Harvard and the Indies have gone. I think they've taken her.
2: <sighs> the Admiralty's not gonna be happy about this.
0: So here we're introduced to Captain Jefferson Clay and witness a battle between the Commonwealth and the Indies, where the enemy makes off with the Commonwealth cruiser, Harvard. Cut to the capital of the Commonwealth and a conference where Naval Brass are discussing the recent increases in pirate attacks with President Harrison King and his cabinet.
3: Worseful conditions in Bangladesh are proving too much for government aid operatives as the oceanic rise continues. As Governor Ledbetter
2: was making the announcement All right, power outages seen in the enough. downtown area.
3: Commander Risco, wouldn't you say that the latest loss of a Navy ship to the pirates I represents think. extreme incompetence on behalf of the Navy?
2: Where is she? Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, I want to apologize for Admiral Hansen's absence. She got caught in a power outage coming down from the orbital, and of course the storm made... Does anyone else here find it surprising that a woman with more than 3,000 spaceships at her disposal should find it so difficult getting to a meeting on time? Uh, I'll get right to it. These figures are not pleasant reading. Successful piracy attacks are going through the roof. We've lost ten shipments of Neutronium headed for Earth this week alone.
3: We've also lost
2: four Navy vessels in the last month. One destroyed and three captured by the Indies.
0: Frankly, our current attempts to contain the situation
2: are failing. Thank you, Admiral Brett. Any responses? If the press get to hear of this, with all respect, to hell with the press, John. Just in A Zone, we have four billion to feed. We need those shipments, if we can only trim the military budget. What? And have the Indies walk all over us some more? We're not dealing with some band of gun-happy pirates. We've been fighting a guerrilla war out there for the, the last fifty years. If we need to do anything, we need to strengthen the fleet. I am adjourning this meeting. I think we all need to look at this data a little more closely. Meeting adjourned. Oh, Admiral Brett? Yes, Mr. President? I'd like a word.
0: We then cut to the independent secret base, where we see the captured Harvard being converted into a graffiti covered in the ship. Uh, We're getting a good idea here of the dynamic between the two sides. Uh, They also refer to a bargain between the Indies and Mysterious Friends, who we will know nothing about. Uh, We then go back to the President and the Admiral having their private conversation that we just heard about in the previous clip.
2: Since Admiral Hanson will not be joining us, I thought you might be interested in this report. If our sources are correct, the Indies are planning their most significant attack in years. They have selected a target which would hurt us immeasurably. Which is? The Talamon jump point at Alpha Centauri. They plan to block the most strategically vital junction point in known space. Block it? How? I'll... I'll recall the fleet, we can. No. If we send in the fleet, there won't be an attack. We'll just lose our informants. No. This needs something, someone special. Someone we can use without raising suspicion. I'll get on to it. We can have the most decorated officers in known space. Listen and listen well, my friend. We don't need decorated. We don't need senior, well-educated, or well-connected. This is a war. What we need are results. Now, tell me. Which serving officer has had the most kills? Hmm. I'll just... Clay
1: Jefferson H. Captain Dreadnought CNV 301.
2: Kill total
3: 151. Confirmed.
2: Jefferson Clay, eh? Send him on a patrol mission to the Toliman jump point. Can we trust him? He has a reputation as a dangerous man. Good. We need... A dangerous man.
0: Clay proceeds to the Toleman jump point on his patrol to determine the disposition of the supposed enemy attack. If he encounters a strong force, he is to call for a 10-ship backup fleet. On jumping in and approaching a lone enemy vessel, many, many enemy ships jump in. Clay calls for the backup fleet, who responds and commences their jump to the combat zone. Before they come out of jump, however, the Indies deploy a jump point blocker basically a large construct that the Commonwealth fleet will smash into upon exiting their jump. To save the fleet, Clay and his crew ram the dreadnought into the blocker, destroying it and saving the fleet at the cost of their own lives. Interestingly, until now, it was very clear that you would probably be playing Clay in the game, but obviously, that is not the case. Or is it?
1: And so that is the story of how Jefferson Clay died. He gave up his life to save more than 1,500 of his fellow officers. He was the greatest hero in the history of space warfare, a role model, a legend. He made a difference by inspiring a whole generation of young officers. But of course it wasn't until five years later that Clay got the chance to figure out what was really going on.
0: So, five years pass and it turns out that you are not playing as Clay, but as a new lieutenant in the Commonwealth Navy who idolizes clay and the Dreadnoughts' exploits. Now on to gameplay. Uh, There are two options for gameplay modes in IWAR. Instant action, where you basically fight a gauntlet-style scenario. Uh, this is more for combat practice, and well, fun, it isn't really where the strength of the game lies. What we want is the campaign mode. Firstly you create a new pilot. Then you have the option of selecting your gameplay style, arcade or simulation. Arcade mode is what the devs kind of refer to as easy. In arcade mode, your weapons are three times more powerful. Damage is limited so your systems never go fully offline, and the ship flies like a more traditional space sim, that is, your ship flies like an atmospheric aircraft. The one caveat to this mode is that most missions will contain more enemies to compensate for your more powerful weapons. If you have trouble with the simulation mode or just want to play the game for the story aspects, then go ahead and choose arcade mode. However, if you really want to play the game the way it was meant to be played, choose simulation. The simulation mode is where Independence War is truly unique. Simulation mode offers the full flight model. So unlike Wing Commander, X-Wing, Descent Free Space, or almost any other space combat sim, Independence War uses a Newtonian physics model for space flight. Well, what does this mean, you ask? Well, it means that the game follows the laws of physics as defined by Sir Isaac Newton. That is, in a vacuum, which space is, all objects have mass, inertia and must be controlled via combinations of forces and counter forces. So based on our limited experience with spaceflight, this is considered the most realistic model of how science fiction inspired starships would operate. For example, if you thrust your ship forward and then disengage your engines, your ship will not come to a halt. It will keep going in that same direction until either you hit something or apply reverse thrust to slow down or stop. Also, if you rotate your ship, its flight path will not change. The ship will rotate around its center of mass, but again, unless you apply some kind of additional thrust, it will not change its flight path at all. We'll get more into this in a bit. For now, suffice it to say we will choose simulation mode. This brings you to the mission selection screen, where you can view your mission history, replay previously completed missions, or of course select a new mission to progress the game forward. You generally have the option to choose between two missions. As a new pilot, Your options are to fly the first actual game mission, named Salvage, or one of five tutorial missions, Nav Basic, Nav Advanced, WEP Basic, WEP Advanced, and WEP Tactical. These tutorial missions gives you a very good idea of how to pilot your ship, use the various types of autopilots, how to use weapons, commanding wingmen, and things like that. So once you're comfortable with the Sims, you can move on to your first real mission. Each mission is named and begins with a mission briefing. Here's the briefing for Mission 1, salvage.
3: Lieutenant, you will have realized by now the value the Commonwealth places on the fleet. The latest Navy plan is to increase the size of the fleet by 10% this year. Our records suggest that there are a number of promising salvage candidates in the debris field left over from the battle for the Toleman Exchange. The debris field is protected by a number of mine devices. These have been alerted to your presence and temporarily deactivated. You and your crew will enter the debris field in a standard command section sub-vessel. It should be compatible with most vessel classes in the debris field. You should attempt a salvage operation on the most intact hulk you encounter. A flatbed tug will transport the command vessel to the vicinity of the debris field. To secure against the prospect of indie looting, the debris field is protected by hunter-seeker mines. These will be alerted to your presence and deactivated. The tug will release the command section and wait outside the debris field. You should then pilot the vessel into the field and start the search for any salvageable vessel candidates. You should investigate any large debris items which might be ships. Our scans reveal several promising hulks within the field which seem to be intact. If you find a salvageable ship, dock the command section onto the vessel and pilot the ship back out of the field to rendezvous with the flatbed. You'll have some time to kill before the tug gets you near the debris field, so I suggest you use that time wisely in familiarizing yourself with the command section controls.
0: So, you have to go to the now five-year-old site of the battle described in the intro and find a serviceable ship left there. Fine. You start the mission docked to the back of a flatbed tug. Well, docked, you can't maneuver your ship. So in less than five minutes, you arrive at your waypoint and hit the U key to undock. Your command section, which is basically just the bridge module from a Commonwealth Corvette, is free and clear to maneuver. You have limited speed and no weapons, And uh, you also have access to two of the four available bridge stations, only command and navigation. You and your two crew members navigate the debris field and scope out quite a few useless pieces of the debris. This gives you more practice in targeting and navigating through obstacles and all that. Uh, You notice in addition to the debris that there are the previously mentioned deactivated mines. Eventually, you come across the hulk of a corvette. It is identified as CNV-301, the Dreadnought, Clay's former ship.
3: That corvette looks promising. The Hulk is rotating way too fast to dock with. We need to stop the rotation.
2: I suggest we try remote logon. Make the Dreadnought your nav target, then press RAM on the command console.
0: So you go to the command console and select the RAM function. This allows you to enter a full screen remote control view of another allied ship. Of course, doing so brings your ship to a complete halt, so it isn't the best idea to do unless you're in a safe environment you quickly bring the other ship's rotation under control and begin the docking process by engaging the docking autopilot. There are a variety of autopilots in IWAR that perform different tasks. In this case, we need to dock with another ship, so we select Autopilot Docking. Another function is Autopilot Approach. This is most useful for travel, so you'd use it to approach a destination and stop when arriving. We also have Formate, which will enter formation with a moving target and follow it, and finally Autopilot Match Speed which definitely comes in handy in combat if you want to stay behind an enemy but still control your ship's maneuvers. So, you dock, and now you've got yourself a beat-up ship.
3: Docking complete. We have a green light on the cables, on the airlock, and the pass-throughs.
1: Looks like we have ourselves a starship. Burn, what state is she in?
3: Considering
2: she's been five years in the freezer, not bad. The accommodation units are missing, and the main tank is hulled, but the reservists is still okay.
0: Well, that's all well and good, but remember those dormant mines? They were told to ignore your command section. Well, now you've got a command section attached to an entire corvette. The mines wake up and start attacking you. Luckily, it seems as though the particle beam cannons on the dreadnought are operational. Flipping from the nav console, which you were using to fly the ship, to the now active weapons console... Uh, You can use the PVCs to take out the mines. The weapons console shows a padlocked view from your ship to your current target with a wireframe of your ship in the middle. This is incredibly useful as it shows the current orientation of your ship in relation to your target. It also highlights which of your weapons banks are currently within range of your target. The dreadnought is equipped with one front facing particle beam cannon which covers the full 180 degree front arc of your ship and one rear facing PVC which covers the back. It also mounts front and rear-facing missile launchers, but those are empty at the moment. You'll spend quite a bit of time in this weapons view, and it really is one of the most useful views in the game. So, as soon as you take out the last mine, which is not a huge challenge, something interesting happens. Your engineering officer reports in. Sir, I'm getting a signal from within the ship. What kind of signal? It's coming across on the crew intercom video link. Here, I'll I'll
2: patch you in. Would you dig up my grave? I beg your pardon? I said would you dig up my grave?
1: Of course not.
2: So I gather you don't approve of being disrespectful of the dead?
1: No. Why?
2: Because of this. Me. Being here now. Being here dead. That's why. I was killed. I am dead. But would they let me rest in peace? Would they? Oh, no. They would not let me be. Son of a bitch recovered the Hulk of the dreadnought and pulled out this sorry digital facsimile
3: of my mind. An unholy capture of my
2: last thoughts taken without consent during my final glorious medal-winning battle. And then they dragged me, kicking and screaming, back into service. I'll tell you, this is one odd Navy boy. You don't get time off, even for being dead.
1: Listen, if it helps at all, I didn't ask for some kind of digital command assistant. Digital
2: assist, digital assistant, that's me. Get your untrained crew out there into darkest space, and if they drift into a bit of trouble, wander off the edge of their limited simulator academy-safe territory into trouble, then the crew can drop their milk and cookies,
3: press a few buttons, and the Captain of Matter pops out the answer. Well, I don't think so.
1: So you're not going to help? Did I say that? No. Only I am gonna play it like a computer. Stupid dumbass questions in, stupid smartass sarcastic remarks out. Now if you ever manage to ask me a question which doesn't insult my experience and intelligence, I dare say I'll force a civil answer out of myself.
0: So not only did you end up with a ship, but it seems as though Jefferson Clay's mind and personality were somehow imaged onto the ship's computer. So not only do you have Clay's ship, you have his experience, tactical knowledge, and sarcasm sitting on your shoulder along for the ride. So once you complete the mission, you're given your shot at command. When you join the Navy, you expect to serve on a ship. We were sent out to find a ship. What we found was the dreadnought,
1: first in her class and the last ship of Jefferson Clay. When the ship
0: was refitted, my CO was impressed enough to let me try out for command. So that's the first real mission in the game. As you can see, the missions are generally very rich in interactivity and story, and are very heavily scripted. The first mission is fairly straightforward, but even in this one, I died once. The controls in combat and independence war are unforgiving. In fact, this game is much more strategic than most other space sims. There's generally only one or two tactics that will allow you to complete a mission. The trick is figuring out what they are. For example, the mission entitled Gatekeeper tasks you with defending a junk point while an engineering crew activates a set of gunnery installations or gun stars that are around it. Each time the tug docks with an emplacement, a new wave of enemies jumps through the Lagrange point and attempts to destroy the stations. The first wave is a single enemy, the second is two, the third is four, and the final wave is I'm pretty sure at least eight ships. Uh, For the first wave, you can jump in guns blazing. The second gets tougher, and if you just try to hammer through the third, you'll most likely very quickly die. The trick in this mission is to place yourself behind and just above the jump point between each wave so you can get the drop on the ships as they jump in. For the first two waves, just use your PBC cannons. At the third wave, do the same, but angle your ship away from the jump point to bring your rear missile pack to bear. When the next wave jumps in, spam each enemy with one or two missiles from your rear pack to soften them up. One of them will turn to engage you, while the others will attack the stations. So why do we use the rear missile pack and not just the front one? Well, the rear pack isn't quite as useful in a dogfight, and each pack only holds around 15 missiles each. So you might as well burn up your rear-facing pack at long range. As you take out the enemy ships attacking you, or as you take out the one enemy ship that's attacking you, the two currently active Gunstars will most likely take out the other enemies since you already softened them up with the missiles. So you have to repeat to do that for the last wave with more ships. Now this may sound easy, but if you have to figure out this strategy on your own, it can be quite challenging. I beat my head against this mission for quite a while in my research playthrough, and uh, even after I looked up the strategy, it frankly wasn't that easy to implement. I probably ran this mission at least 10 or 15 times. The other reason the game is so unforgiving is that, frankly, we are not used to space sims like this. When we look back and think on it, most space sims are based on the combat model created in Star Wars. George Lucas has said countless times in interview that he used old World War II dogfighting movies as inspiration for the fighter combat in his films. The result of this was space combat that resembled World War II aerial dogfighting, spaceships flying like they were in atmosphere, fighting on a single horizontal plane, and not taking advantage of the fact that you were in space and you could move in many ways an atmospheric aircraft could not. In addition, in games like Wing Commander, X-Wing, and Descent Free Space, you were always piloting a one-man fighter craft. Uh, In this game, you're piloting a Corvette, which is a small capital ship. You cannot fly the ship like a fighter. It doesn't turn very well, it takes quite a while to change speed, and it isn't incredibly resilient. It isn't all bad, though. Your weapons can fire in all directions on turrets, which is great. Speaking of the controls, iWar can be controlled via keyboard and mouse, but the game will be very, very difficult using this scheme. It's really designed to be played with a three-axis, four-or-more-button joystick. I guess I should describe the controls a little bit more since, you know, these are both at the same time the game's blessing and curse. So as I've already explained, the game uses Newtonian physics to model spaceflight. Your ship will fly in a straight line until you add thrust to change its direction. So this is true, but it's not really the default flight mode. By default, you pilot your vessel in a mode known as Flight Assist In this mode the ship's computer does its best to simulate a more traditional flight model with the throttle set to a speed the computer will do its best to keep you at that speed and traveling in the direction the ship's nose is pointed at at all times this works very well at low speeds as you increase speed however the ship will have a large tendency to kind of skid through turns as the computer tries to make the ship's engines and maneuvering thrusters readjust its trajectory to counter the ship's inertia the ship's direction of travel is illustrated on your heads-up display by a series of red lines. As you travel faster, the lines elongate in the direction of travel. So if you're traveling in a straight line at relatively high speed, the lines look somewhat like the stars do in Star Trek when uh, the Enterprise is, say, at warp speed. They're kind of these streaks. If you're traveling at high speed in turn, the lines will show your ship's direction of travel in relation to its orientation. So they may travel instead of straight towards you, they may travel across your screen or in reverse even, until the flight assist system can readjust your ship's inertia and direction. So flight assist is great for traveling from place to place and approaching combat. However, in combat, I had a tendency to turn the flight assist off by pressing N and uh, enter a more free kind of navigation mode. So with flight assist off, your ship is free to rotate independent of its direction of travel. Also, your throttle becomes useless. Whatever speed and direction you were traveling at when you switched off flight assist, is the direction you will be traveling in. In combat, this is very cool. Uh, you can set your approach just above or below your enemy, firing as you approach. Then, as you blow past them, you can rotate and continue firing from behind into their less armored engines while traveling away from them. Now, if you wanted to change direction in free flight boat, you could simply re-engage flight assist and the computer would start throttling your ship and doing all this stuff in its new direction. Of course, if you were moving backwards in relation to your new direction, your ship would have to come to a stop and then begin throttling forward from zero. So depending on your situation, this could be a very dangerous maneuver. Uh, The other method is to use what are called thrust overrides. So hitting A would engage your engines forward and ignore throttle settings. It also had the ability to accelerate your ship beyond the 1,000 meter per second limit on your regular throttle. So this is basically saying override the thrust settings, fire as much power into the engines as you can, and accelerate. Uh, This is a very useful run the hell away feature pressing Z or Z for my American friends uh, Would do the same but with reverse thrust So, you know, if you want to slow down quick if you want to back up when you're supposed to be moving forward you hit Z and the same thing Happens, so that's all the controls for the regular thrusters But in addition to the regular thrusters your ship has two other drive systems for fast travel in system You can engage your LDS or linear displacement system This drive mode brings your ship up to near light speed and is really great for covering long distances. Your autopilots will engage LDS automatically if you are not too close to a planet or station and uh, if enemies have not tagged you with an LDS-inhibit missile, which will stop you from engaging your drive. Uh, It also disengages if you're within 20 kilometers of your destination. A great trick, actually, to get out of a sticky situation is to quickly engage your LDS drive, which immediately accelerates you to 1,000 meters per second without any lag. Of course, staying in LDS for long and manual control will likely end up with you smashing into a planet, so you want to disengage it as, as quickly as you can. Now, for inter-system travel, a capsule drive is used. Jump points from system to system are located at Lagrange points, or maybe it's Lagrange points if for the non-French pronunciation. Uh, Lagrange points are uh, a real point... In each solar system, these actually exist in in the real universe where gravitational forces are at their weakest. So it means that it's kind of the most gravitationally stable point in the solar system. So all these drive systems work very well unless they take damage. If your main drive goes down, you will not be able to adjust your speed or direction of travel until it's repaired. If your maneuvering thrusters are damaged, your ship may spin around until it's repaired. If your power plant is damaged, nothing will work. The repairs and power allocation can be managed through the engineering screen. Uh, through the the auto repair systems work fairly well, prioritizing systems and things like that. If your weapons are damaged, it doesn't really matter if there's no power going to them once they're repaired. So you probably want to repair your power plant before you repair your weapon systems. You do have the ability to override that, but I never really saw a huge need to. Power can be allocated between engines shields and weapons in various uh various proportions adding more power to weapons increases their destructiveness adding power to engines increases acceleration and maneuverability and etc uh, though i generally ran with balanced power there were times when adjusting power could be useful for example in that gatekeeper mission you didn't really need to move around super quickly and um you know so transferring some power to weapons helped you to take out enemies a little bit quicker So with all that in mind, you make your way through the game's branching mission structure in much the same way that the original Wing Commander revolutionized. Depending on your completion of certain key mission objectives, one set or another of missions would be unlocked, which would eventually take you to one of three different endings. The canon ending is that you defeat the mysterious mastermind behind the indie movement and end the war. Now, being the ambitious game that this was... IWAR did have its share of issues. Because each mission was so tightly scripted, the next phase of a mission was generally triggered by you performing a very specific action. At times these actions were natural and simply occurred in the process of playing the mission. Other times they were a bit more esoteric. You, know, you may have to approach a certain object within a certain distance or travel to a certain waypoint which you may not naturally have to travel to. In addition to these kind of strange triggering actions, there were also occasional scripting errors. Which would, uh, which would cause missions to become unwinnable. So say to trigger the next phase of the mission, you had to destroy an enemy. There may be a scripting error where you destroy the enemy and the, the next script does not get triggered. Uh, another odd example was in the first mission. I approached the dreadnought in my command module as described in the, uh, in the description in that little section back there. Uh, and as I was approaching it, my throttle was set to full on my joystick. So when I got close enough, a cutscene started playing. After the cutscene, you're placed in very close proximity to the derelict dreadnought at a dead stop. Of course, even though my ship was scripted to stop, my joystick throttle was at full, so my ship immediately accelerated and I smashed into the spinning ship immediately dying. So that taught me to zero my throttle at cutscenes.
1: You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for...
0: Alright, tech focus. So, since we're into a slightly more modern game with this one, the system requirements look a little bit more familiar. The original game shipped on either three CD ROMs for the standard edition or four CDs for the special edition. It required at least a Pentium 90 MHz, that's a Pentium 1, everyone, uh, 16 megs of RAM, that's not 16 gigs of RAM, that's 16 megs, 80 megs of hard drive space, a double speed CD ROM, and SVGA 256 color graphics. Uh, the game was designed using B-Render, or Blazing Renderer. This is an engine which could render the 3D gra- graphics in a variety of resolutions, including 800x600 Super VGA. The engine supported the new Multimedia Extensions, or MMX technology, which was introduced in the Pentium Pro processor. Also, most impressively, it natively supported a wide variety of 3D accelerators, including 3DFX, ATI, S3, and Matrox cards. Uh, I might be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure NVIDIA hadn't come on the scene as of yet around that time. Now, it had that capability. The question was, was it used or was it not used? You had to kind of leverage that, but it was in the engine. So all that to say that for the time, this was a beautiful, beautiful game with really great graphics. Now, the music for the original game was composed by Kevin Seville, and uh, as you can hear, is, is very well done and ambient. Though it may not be incredibly memorable from kind of a thematic perspective, in my opinion it does a great job setting the ambience of the world. The music for the expansion of the game and the sequel were composed by Chris Mann and uh, that music was a bit more memorable and interesting to the point of actually winning an award. Podcast. Time for story. Dev story time. So Independence War was developed by Particle Systems, a UK development house founded by Glyn Williams and Michael Powell. Uh, though they hadn't met at that point, after they both completed university, uh, both of the men moved into what looks like a kind of a UK tradition of their day, the backroom game developer. Uh, on his own, Michael produced games like 1993's 3D Submarine Combat Sim, Subwar 2050, which was released by Microprose, and uh, Glynn created a well-known 1989 space sim named Warhead, which was published by Activision. Now The two men went on this way, doing their own things, until 1996. However, the industry was changing. With the prospect of expanding project sizes and huge budgets, single-man dev teams were just no longer feasible. Michael and Glynn got together to form particle systems. The full particle team of six people started work on a revolutionary new space sim. The working title of the game was simply Big Ships. The first problem encountered by the team was with naming. The original title of the game was to be Dreadnought. and This makes sense. was the name of your ship and that name frankly had huge meaning in british naval history the hms dreadnought launched in 1905 revolutionized naval warfare with regard to weapons and power plants that ran on steam turbines other ships at the time did not and sparked a naval arms race in the west kind of leading up to world war one it was decided however that the name had no resonance with french and german audiences and being that this game was being released in the eu they had to capture those markets so next, they decided on the title of Infinity War. This was better, but there was a popular Marvel comic series out by the same name. So instead of coming up with something new, they decided just to shorten it to iWar, and the game released in November 1997. At the time on the box, it said it was published by Ocean Software. Ocean had been acquired by Infogrames earlier that year, but the original game released under the Ocean name. Interestingly, as I mentioned uh, in Tech Focus, the first version, while the engine had 3D accelerator support, uh, the game did not leverage it. So at this point, we only had software rendering in the European release of the game. iWar was a critical success, but it didn't sell as well as expected. More naming issues followed leading up to the US release in August 1998. Uh, Turns out Atari had trademarked iWar for an Atari Jaguar game. The game was re-re-renamed to Independence War. With the US release, 3DFX Glide support was added and some in-game models were upgraded with higher polygon counts. This upgrade was also put out as a free download for original iWar owners. The US release was just as well reviewed by the press. It won Space Sim of the Year, but still never reached the sales numbers of Wing Commander or FreeSpace. It's interesting, because this is one of the first times we've come across a game that resonated very well with critics, but never really gained more than a cult following with gamers. A short time later, an expansion pack named Defiance was released. This campaign provided an additional 18 missions, which mirrored the original campaign, but from the perspective of the captain of the indie dreadnought Spartacus. So instead of seeing things from the Commonwealth side of things, you see them from the quote-unquote bad guys point of view. The missions were considered even more difficult than the original game and were kind of intended for people that had finished the uh, the first campaign and were considered uh, independence war veterans. So though this was intended as an expansion, Infogrames execs decided that it should be released as a full new game edition. So Independence War Deluxe Edition, released in 1999, consisting of four discs, with the fourth disc containing the expansion. In the US, previous owners received a $10 rebate. EU owners got nothing, so if you wanted the expansion, you basically just had to buy the whole game over again, which probably wasn't the nicest, uh, Way to go about things, but uh, I guess there's money to be made, so that's what the execs decided to do. Uh, Also, in late 1998, mod tools were released, allowing players to create and script their own missions. This led to a small but vibrant iWar mod community. Finally, in 2001, an ambitious sequel, Independence War II: Edge of Chaos, was released. This new game was much, much bigger than the original. Where the first iWar could be compared to Wing Commander 1, This sequel was more akin to Wing Commander Privateer. It was more of an open-world kind of space trading and combat simulation. So uh, the story goes that you are 12-year-old Cal Johnston. The beginning of the game has Cal witnessing the murder of his father by industrial heir Caleb Moss. It turns out that Cal's father had come into possession of the Jefferson Clay AI from the first game. Jefferson instructs Cal in how to escape and find his grandmother's abandoned pirate base. Yes, his grandmother, unbeknownst to him, was an infamous space pirate. Uh, After a few few familiarization missions, Cal encounters Caleb, who throws Cal in jail for 15 years. 15 years later, Cal and his band of criminal friends escape lockup and find their way back to the still-abandoned base where Cal had left the Clay A.I., The rest of the game is a mix of free-play piracy action and story-based scripted missions. You have the ability to acquire multiple ships, weapons, modified loadouts, build upgrades, trade, all kinds of stuff. I War II also has quite a few great mods out. Independence War II is great, deep, and even more beautiful of a game that maintains the great physics model but simplifies combat somewhat from the first game. It's still incredibly challenging. Just like the first game, I War II released a huge critical success. But again never reached expected sales numbers so what does the future hold for independence war well there isn't any development in recent years on the iwar front but i am still greatly looking forward to chris Roberts' star citizen project that i've been talking about in past shows if that project is successful in doing what has been promised it may revive the space sim genre from there who knows independence war 3 may very well be possible Ah, the Upper Memory Podcast. One of the best podcasts around about geeky old-style gaming on computers. Well, we talk about old stuff as well. We talk about old classic television programs and films from around the world. So if that's your cup of tea or coffee, then why don't you listen to us? We're called Waffle On Podcast, and you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or at our main site, which is waffleon.podbean.com. We would be honoured if you'd join us. So where can we get Independence War today? So as with many of our games, both Independence War Deluxe Edition and Independence War 2 are available on GOG.com for five bucks each. These versions are actually very much worthwhile. Since this is a Windows 95 98 native game, the original versions do have quite a few issues running on Windows 7. It's possible, but it does take quite a bit of work. The GOG versions work right out of the box and that is worth five bucks in my book. so here we are as we usually are at the end of the show does independence war hold up today well this will really depend on how much you love space sims for me the graphics of the original are still pretty good the flight model is not novel even today the problem i have with this game is the same problem which i'm sure caused it not to take off in sales like it's competition this game is unforgivingly hard. I actually did own this game back in 1998, and I never got beyond the first few missions. I actually still have the discs down down in the basement next to the computer. Uh, this time around, I, I got a bit farther, but it's the same. You make one or two small mistakes in the mission, and you are toast. As of right now, I'm not done with it. I want to get back in and keep hammering at things, but your enjoyment of this game really does depend greatly on your patience with it and your ability to beat your head against the same problem over and over until you get it. Frankly, I find Independence War 2 a bit more enjoyable. The narrative is deeper, the game is bigger, and you have a lot more options for uh, for what to do. Is it any less hard? Well, very slightly less hard. I still die every second time I go out. Uh, If you love space sims, these games deserve a try. If not, it may just be an exercise in frustration. As usual, the choice is yours. I enjoyed these games a lot. I love the look of them, especially Independence War 2. The graphics are, I'd say, almost just as good as, as graphics today. And uh, yeah, so give them a go if, uh, if it's something that you think you may enjoy.
1: Hey guys, I'm Kenny. And I'm Teal. And we're here today to talk about a brand new companion cast... For a fantastic new web series called My Gimpy Life. My Gimpy Life is loosely based on my life and the awkward situations I encounter being an actress with a disability in Hollywood. Yes, and I'll be on set every day bringing you live interviews from cast and crew members. So stay tuned for the brand new companion cast from My Gimpy Life.
3: Bye.
0: So that's it for another week. Thanks to Andreas and Martin for their emails. As always, I love it when I get feedback, be it about a specific game, or about anything else. Next time, I'm getting back to my favorite genre, adventure. We're going to hit the 1995 LucasArts game, Full Throttle. It's time for some Tim Schafer action. I am excited, and I'm sure that a lot of you guys played this game, and we'll have some stuff to say about it. So as always, you can send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks to Rick Moyer for his great audio work, you can find him over at MoyerMultimedia.com. Check out the show notes at UMBCast.com. You can join the Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash UMBCast. We have some nice activity going on over there pretty much all the time. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash and Me personally at twitter.com billybob476. And as always, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or stream us live at Stitcher Radio. And if you can put any reviews on for the show on either of those services, I would be very, very pleased. So thanks again for listening and we will see you next time for Full Throttle in the Upper Memory Block.
3: Battle control terminated.
1: You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com.
0: So what shall it be? Do you join the unity?
1: Or do you die here?
3: Join.